You're listening to Arsenal Pass, a flesh and blood podcast for players by players. And all about strategy, leveling up, and the latest news in the world of Wraith. Welcome to Arsenal Pass. Welcome back, everyone, to episode 139 of Arsenal Pass. I'm Brennan Patrick, joined always by Mr. Hayden Dale sitting across from me. And with this weekend, Icelander has left the classic constructed format, as well as we saw the largest grassroots tournament that has ever occurred in Flesh and Blood um, this past weekend with the Realm Games 20K Invitational. I'm not sure if it was the largest in terms of actual player count that attended, but in terms of prize pool that was put up and just, I don't know, Realm Games has been hyping this up for about a year, right? This is the their circuit led to this 20K Invitational. Um, that occurred this past weekend, which was won by Michael Fang. And I believe the 10K uh, event the day after was won by Brody Spurlock, which is actually kind of hilarious. All the way around, I think. Is it really? <laughs> it's the other way around? Well, either way, around, it's uh, it's pretty hilarious because both those players have been taking down Battle Hardens for what feels like years at this point. To see them win both events on the weekend is uh, is pretty funny. So congratulations to Brody Spurlock and Michael Fang. And just another notch on the belt for the old wolf pack over there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, the top eights in general look pretty, like a lot of familiar names in there. Uh, some interesting decks in there as well. Interesting heroes, Bolton, and featuring both those top eights. We also had a Battle Hardened in Thailand over the weekend. Um, and we've got a few more Battle Hardens before kind of the year closes out. So we're going to see this class constructor format, this new class constructor format, this, this thawed out class constructor format be played a little bit more before we get to heavy hitters. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually bummed uh, at the Thailand thing. I wish I wish I could have gone. Thailand is one of those places on my on my list where Flesh and Blood has a tournament there. I'd like to get there if possible, but because it was so close to the World Championships, I just really did not feel like traveling. Like, it didn't even make it out to Columbus because I was so fried from travel. But, I mean, I've probably spent, at this point, I've probably spent over a year of my life in Bangkok specifically. So it's a city that's very, very close to my heart. I look the day we see you in the southern hemisphere will be uh that'll be a day to remember it's coming it's coming um yeah one of these days i mean hopefully we get the excuse to go to japan sooner rather than later i know japan is like the big marquee location that everybody in flesh and blood wants to go to at this point um i know from the sort of logistical perspective there's some some barriers to entry that flesh and blood needs to break through before they can host a tournament there but that if we are able to go to Japan, I will absolutely be extending my trip. I'm not sure if I'm just going to do a trip across that country. Um, I definitely will be doing that. Mind, mind yeah. you. Yeah. So I would definitely will be doing it, but I don't know if I'm also going to make the trip down to the, uh, you know, Southeast Asia or maybe even Australia at that. Yeah. I guess technically, I think Japan, Thailand, uh, and Northern Hemisphere, but, but you know what I mean? You know what I mean? Make, make it south, make it south. <laughs> I guess you're right. Technically, yeah. Is, uh, is, is, is Thailand also in the Northern Hemisphere? Where is the equator? I think it is, yeah. No, I, I think it's in the Northern Hemisphere. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not sure exactly where the equator is uh, in regards to like Southeast Asia. It's about in the middle. I think. I think it's about in the middle. Mm-mm. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Makes sense. Do you want to talk weeks weeks in flesh and blood? Yeah, Hayden. How how much flesh and blood you've been playing this past week? Big old zero zero amounts of flesh and blood. I'm definitely taking the next few weeks off. I had actually planned to play a um a blitz event a team blitz event this coming weekend but i i've had something come up so i've had to pull out of the of the team blitz but i was looking forward to that i as i talked about in the pod last week maybe in the week before team blitz is one of my favorite formats and yeah i was very keen to to play this just a, a store run event sort of end of year i think it's like a, a winner box or winner case or something event team blitz event but um won't be able to won't be able to play so i think basically now till christmas i'm just gonna gonna sit it out might watch some flesh and blood for sure i want to go back and watch some of the the realm coverage and the battle hardened uh bangkok coverage on the weekend because there's there's some spicy stuff happening in this new meta but yeah and otherwise it's kind of going to be finally i think this will be the first time this year i haven't really played any flesh and blood so i'm gonna take it i'm gonna take it yeah and as you can imagine i'm doing the same thing if people are listening to this are like what the hell these guys talk about flesh and blood they don't even play well flesh and blood is a game that you play uh ideally in cycles so it's you know after the world championship and after the pt we do tend to take a little bit of break because there's a lot of grinding that goes on before then um so yeah i'm, I'm also yeah i'm sitting on the sidelines as well like i said i mentioned in the last pod um this next competitive season i will be leaving casting and coming back to competitive play so uh, i mean expect to see me ramp up my interaction or gameplay as we get closer to that event in los angeles 
So what's so obviously the there's a lot of battle hardens already announced for the first half of the, the year callings etc. Mm. What's your kind of plan? Have you mapped that out? Yeah. What, what you think you're gonna play other I than LA? Don't care about battle hardens at all. To to be honest, uh, if they're if they're local enough, I'll go for sure. But um, I'm not super interested in the you know fly in fly out for the weekend for a battle harden. Um, to be honest, to, to play, it's just I, for me. It's like you know, I mean, everything in life is a balance, right? So if you're gonna, if you're committing to playing a game more competitively, you do need to figure out like what passes your filter and what's gonna take your time. And for me, battle hardens just aren't gonna aren't gonna check that box. Callings probably as well. It's probably just gonna be local stuff. If there's a reason to go to callings outside of the gameplay, so if I have friends going, um, and if there's a compelling reason to go to that location that is not just the tournament, I will go. Um, or if it's not low or in in the case that it's not local, other than that, mostly just focused on the the upcoming pro tour. Callings, yeah. So I said for callings, it would be the same thing. Oh, sorry, yeah. I thought you two tournament just better. No, I mean for callings, it's yeah. Like I said, it's my I would have friends going, or it's in a location that I want to travel to. I'm not going to be going out of my way for for callings. Interesting. What's the what's the thought? Is that just you don't want to travel? You don't want to? You feel callings are just lower value? What's your what's your thoughts on the calling circuit overall? Because I think the calling circuit's obviously what. Alice has put more of the investment into over the past past sort of year and a half, two years. Yeah, I mean, flesh and blood for me is not a plus money EV sort of thing. It's not why I do it. Um, and if you think about like the pro tours or the world championships, part of the aspect of those tournaments are you know we are coming together as a group, as a team. Um, all we are all flying into this location, and there's there's much more of experience that's going on there. I think that the calling circuit is much for more for people that are looking to just grind out um, a tournament or a TCG and play it for just the competitive aspect. And flesh and blood for me is while I am looking to compete and I want to be doing well at pro tours or at tier four events. Uh, the competing in and of itself is not the only reason I'm doing it. So if the if the event is not surrounded by an experience as well, uh, which the colleagues might not be, then yeah, I'm just I'm I'm less interested. I'm not saying it won't happen, but I won't go out of my way somewhere in the U.S. to to play that. It's just that I'm not, you know, I'm not doing it for the money, you know. And uh, so going plus five hundred dollars EV at a, at, a, at a calling, no, no, no. Not- I mean, you're never really going plus EV at a calling. Yeah, anyway, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of other things you're paying for. But I, I think no, just just on the experience thing. I think for me, to just backing into the experience piece, I think that some of the best experiences I've had this year are definitely in the callings. Um, yeah, as well. But you- that's kind of what's made me want to go to to more. I think, and and like you say, new places definitely for sure. I think you also have friends, which helps. <laughs> Fortunately, my my friends are interna- mostly international, so they're not going to be attending these callings. I mean, I just don't. My support system for Flesh and Blood, for playing Flesh and Blood, testing Flesh and Blood, competing in Flesh and Blood, is more international than it is local. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to be. Ha- I likely will not have a group that is preparing to for a calling or going to a calling. And I'm much more about a, a team experience rather than a solo experience trying to play these tournaments. I think next step up then is to you know you know what that means got to got to come to some of these Asian callings then that's full circle. Yeah, just you know become fifty years old after all those flights, I guess. Because like I said, I f- I feel like I physically age on these these long these long flights at this point. I'm just taking a break from it, um, uh, especially on the e- economy economy seats. They just they you left s- us. I swear the world's gotten smaller in, in many ways, but specifically in seat room and leg room on airplanes, it's ridiculous. I'll have to ask Michael Fing and, and Brody how they do it. Uh, all right, news time. Yep. We have another hero hitting Living Legend Britain over the weekend. After skirmish week three wraps up, Ira has hit Living Legend. So, uh, yeah, official. We've got another hero that's, that's traveled its way to, to Living Legend. So, it's happening. I, I definitely saw some feedback this week about how the speed of this. But um, just to, to recap as well, Edge of Autumn does go with Ira Crimson Hayes as Ira reaches living legend status uh and you know the the hero that's been around the longest in in flesh and blood the hero the first hero we saw so well the first hero that we got to at least play with as ira blitz or ira sorry um intro decks came out first the first product to be available in, in players hands so yeah very very interesting yep. I don't know, thoughts on another another hero and living legend well ira is a very powerful fair hero so when the strategies in blitz are fair ira is a very very strong deck right because it does just get that consistent plus one value um, pretty much turn over turn but when the format is dominated by viscerize that are killing you on turn zero rhinos that are mm-hmm. killing you on turn one or turn zero and uh in kanos it's not as good but in a more fair format i was just it it, it is old reliable in blitz so i'm not i'm not surprised to see yep. it go 
in regards to the uh, you know living legend, I mean, flesh and blood after ramping up this living legend system does have a ro- it is a rotating game like it is, <laughs> uh, and and it will be like this. This is a form of rotation, and I think that the flesh and blood community uh, community in general does does like it. One thing that's interesting about uh, living legend as a form of rotation is that it doesn't rotate out uh, generic cards or potential troublesome cards that exist within within the card pool that maybe were printed earlier in the game or a limiting design in some way that a rotation would, because that would be a set-based rotation. Um, I'm interested what people what people think, because I can't imagine... One of the paradigms I was thinking about is like, okay, I'm, I'm looking about getting into Flesh and Blood. I'm looking to buy a class-constructed deck. Do I buy a good deck, Hayden, or do I buy some mid-tier deck? Because if I buy a good deck, um, it's more likely to be unplayable uh, via being Living Legend in a short amount of time. But if I buy a mid-tier deck, it might not be as powerful in the moment, but it might come to fruition after more heroes rotate out. It's kind of an interesting dynamic as you look to enter the game for the first time, and maybe you are limited by something financially or just card availability, and you're looking to buy into a single deck. Like, what do you get, Hayden? It's a good question. I I think my advice to people is always, if you're going to go out there and and spend some money on cards, it's probably just the staples, right? So it's it's your CNCs, it's your E-Strikes. If you're going to play a deck that has those... I think that makes sense. I mean, if you're going to go and play a deck that has, I guess, a lot of legendaries or a lot of like cyborg slots that need to be legendaries and expensive majestics that are class specific, maybe that's a bit of a tougher kind of buy in, right? Um, but I think in general, I, I mean, these cards are going to come back around. So if you plan to play the game for a long time, I would say just, just buy into the deck that you want to play. The legendaries will, for the most part, hold their value as more of that class is printed. Um, and so will the staples. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what's funny to me is that uh, Legendary Studios is definitely going like you know the one of the key pitches of Flesh and Blood is that it's an eternal game. Like it, it's honestly it's one of the one of the main pitches in the in in the genesis mm-hmm. of the game. Why people bought into the game because they had been so burnt by Magic the Gathering and maybe some other rotating formats. But I mean, at this point, it would be hard to acknowledge that the current system, the current class constructed system, is is eternal, right? I mean. It is, but it really also isn't. And if you're not acknowledging that, I think you're being a bit uh, naive. I, which I think is interesting because I, I'm in, I'm in favor of a more rotating format. I think if it was permanently eternal, we come into more of a Yu-Gi-Oh type system, which is very finicky, and I, I really don't like how they do it. But yeah, I'm interested in people because a lot of people are very, very. Um, is it stalwart the word? I can't even think about the word, but they're they're very entrenched on the idea of this game being eternal. But class constructed is is definitely not that anymore. Especially as we ramp up the living legend system, we do have a pseudo rotating format as our class constructed format. And I'm wondering if you know if people if if the the guise of this rotating format is hidden enough that people will still feel like it's eternal. And what makes something eternal versus rotating? Is it just because your sync belows and your CNCs and your E strikes are not getting rotated? Or like is it you know, is it a rotating format because these heroes are leaving? It's just it's an interesting mm-hmm. dynamic. It does look like uh, Legend Story Studios was sort of balancing this idea where they 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 want the game to be fresh and they want heroes to leave and heroes to come in, but they want to also maintain that original proposition of this is an eternal game your cards do not leave the format interesting times of yeah some i mean some people might point to that being the best of both worlds right but yeah it's tough one. <laughs> we'll see how it kind of plays out with the, the new living legion change. i will say you know ira's been really close to living legion for a very long time through seasons one and two of blitz it was if not the best deck one of the top two three decks in both those seasons um it's been close for a very long time and so you know it's eked its way through the kind of later seasons with a couple ones here a couple ones there and then you know obviously with the kind of shake up of the living legend format chain you know Icelander before that um a lot of heroes hitting living legend kano i just found the the right time to kind of hit living legend as well uh and we'll go into this this next skirmish format sometime next year we'll have new heroes of course new young heroes and and uh, a, a very different looking format with the heroes that haven't seen play i think that's interesting and i know obviously for players who want their heroes they want to play with their cards i hope that you know there's enough young heroes of different classes in the game for people to be able to do that but yeah i think we've had ira for a very long time so um interesting to see what a format without ira kano you know dorinthia is kind of the the last woman standing so to speak in in that regard of some of the one of the heroes that dominated the the earlier seasons of of, of skirmish blitz actually yeah absolutely going back three years almost um I guess elsewhere, uh, do, do, talk a little bit about um, heavy hitters. 
a little bit because we, we didn't really get to touch on this when everything was kind of dropped uh and i don't know if we have you have you seen many of the the preview cards for for heavy hitters yet brilliant i feel like we're, we're due some some more surely I've, I've heard like we're getting some some previews this coming week or over the next week from from people on twitter that might be dropping a few things here and there the previous season doesn't officially starts with january 17th but i think we get like last time we're gonna get some of these maybe it's expansion slots you know some some cards start to drop yeah, so for me, heavy hitters, I really only know the high level, which is that there are dual class cars that we're looking at. Um, you know, some of these OG kind of, or some of these more fair classes, right? The more uh, kind of mid rangey combat oriented classes, and that the set in general will be very, very different from. I, <laughs> this is so obvious when I say it. it's going to be different from Bright Lights. People are like, yeah, of course it is, but I've heard that from you. Know, other sources that it is going to be quite a different experience from Bright Lights, um, almost antithetical towards it, and that the gameplay will be much more combat oriented and mm-hmm. mid range oriented, um, which, yeah, I mean, might be good for the game. I think that Bright Lights, like we've talked about many times, is a set that was uh, deceptively complex, like almost extremely complex to an extent that it was probably a bit too hard for the the new player that was entering the game. Yep. I wanted to basically what I wanted to kind of touch on was these mechanics as well because we're going to kind of come towards a, a previous season and I've just been thinking about some of these mechanics and we're getting these so we're getting wager and clash two mechanics we, we definitely know about we're also getting kind of some different templating for UPF um, we have this deathmatch arena booster draft so this UPF meets booster draft and you have these cards now that are effectively like iron rod equipment so they have blade break uh, and their defense value is equal to the opposing heroes with greater life than you so Kind of like blade break if your opponent has higher life than you they're effectively blade, blade break one they're an iron rock chest talon whatever but obviously in upf with more players they can be have much greater defensive value and if you're a, you know maybe the vulnerable player who's kind of behind in the game you've got this equipment that's potentially powerful so that's interesting but this um this wager mechanic is the one that i found the most interesting so far so this is if you haven't seen wager yet uh it's um when the chain link resolves Oh, sorry, so Wager says you may wager an X. So you can wager a gold token, you can wager a Vigor token. These are the two we've seen so far. And uh, basically it says that if the attack hits, then you get a Vigor token. And if you don't, then the opponent gets the token. So if you decide to wager the gold or the Vigor or whatever token it is, if you hit with the attack action, then you get the token. And if not, your opponent gets the the token. I don't know what, I've been thinking this is such an interesting mechanic and I, I've seen some people talking about online, Brennan, but do you have kind of any thoughts on what this mechanic's going to do for particularly limited i think so this is i mean well i'm actually going to look at it in a completely different angle than you're okay, i think you're talking it. about which this is just a really good mechanic to have in uh games and card games in general which is this, this idea where you're able to increase your stake or your equity in the game and increase the risk of the game based off information mm-hmm. that is asymmetric so there's a very popular mobile game called like marvel snap this is similar to that in an extent where like you're snapping you're increasing your risk and your stake into the game because you think you're in a favorable position or you think you can win the trade um and i know like if you played any of sasha markovic's games all the all of his games are predicated off of like an inflection point where this happens in the game where you're able to stake more or commit more and telegraph sort of a play that is coming and your opponent can respond accordingly um in this case your opponent can't really fold their hand but what they can do is you know they um they can commit they can overblock it or something like that and they're like does he have the reaction do i overblock if i overblock does he just save the reaction for the next turn etc i just think that this mechanic in general it, it's usually i mean my experience with it is that it, it makes games much more interesting um for the reasons that i described yeah i think there's a, a fair second and that's why i think it's, gonna be, it's actually i mean kind of a little bit the design principle of it's actually i think it's going to make limited quite interesting um because you i think in previous games like if you're behind there's no really kind of like way to force your opponent necessarily into into blocking like that added value like you like oh a lot of times just damage and you can put on hit effects on cards right mm-hmm. so you can put your you know your, your discard effects you can put these quite powerful on hit effects but a lot of those time a lot of the times rather those need to be tied to i think um to majestics or higher value and this is quite an interesting one where you get to decide and you get to tie an on hit effect to commons rares uh, and like you said combat focus set force the opponent into more uh incentivized value trades potentially or more uh you basically take just the the printing of the numbers on the cards and you add this mechanic that kind of adds either some like you say asymmetric value or inf- incentivizes an opponent to play in a certain way which I, I i think is really interesting that isn't just math based 
Yeah, it adds, it adds mind games, right? So this this already this already exists in Flesh and Blood. Um, so Command and Conquer Pummel. Your opponent's been sitting on an arsenal for a while. They play their Command and Conquer. Uh, you're in a board state where you're very susceptible to being blown out by this. You're in a face with the paradigm of do I overblock the Command and Conquer Pummel um, and lose value off that because I will be losing value because I will be overblocking. My opponent will potentially save the pump for the next turn, or do I block this just for six? And I assume I put my opponent on not having the pummel. And you have to weigh up both mm-hmm. situations and how they would play out for you and take the one that is the least risky or sometimes you take the one that's more the most risky because you know that it, that that line is the only line that wins you the game these are probably the most interesting points in flesh and blood flesh and blood is a game that is highly dominated by math and just like quantitative values but these are the aspects of the game where that is not necessarily the case yes you could probably if you were able to do the math on like a command and conquer pummel in this exact board state there might be an optimal line but it's not immediately mm. apparent to like the human brain it more comes off of a gut instinct and the new that you get from having experience with the game and understanding um, sort of how those game states play out. And that's what makes Flesh and Blood interesting are these kind of interactions. So I think that they're just doubling down on it. And I think that we've seen this sort of design in many other games, I mean, both past and now present. And it just makes things more interesting because when there are lines that are taken that aren't objective or you're presented with a situation where the actual correct answer isn't necessarily objective and that you you have sort of these non-deterministic ways to play the game that and you basically have to go off a gut instinct experience and your sort of personal expression as a player that's what makes card games really really fun so i think that this is pretty on the nose like we've been seeing this in other games um and it's a very popular very good mechanic to add into a game i think the flesh and blood adopting is only going to make the game uh more fun will it be balanced will it be will it actually be fun and interactive i don't know uh but the core concept of what's actually going on here is in my opinion a good idea yep i guess that leads me to the second mechanic which is clash and this one really adds that kind of flavor and spice like you're saying that kind of uh I mean, they even like say anything could happen as the clash mechanic. So uh, I'll just read out what clash is. So clash is like clashing heroes reveal the top card of the deck. The hero that reveals the card with the greatest attack value wins. And so one of the cards we've seen already is test fragility. This is a brute slash warrior. Uh, so dual, dual class block card. It defends for four. It's a rare at red. It says when this defends clash with the attacking hero, the winner creates an agility token. So some more of this kind of upside value. So this, this card's going to have different value in your deck depending on potentially what your opponent's doing, what you're doing, any known information. Um, it's all going to come down to probably, you're going to start to talk values, Brennan. What's the value of an agility token? Mm. It's test of strength. What's the, uh, the, the value of a gold token when you clash with test of strength? So, so I think you'll be playing clash cards when you are reasonably guaranteed to hit off of them. But what I will say is that this mechanic is definitely an injection of variance into the game, especially in a format like limited. This is a, mm-hmm. I mean, second cycle, Okay, right. We're second cycle. Yes, but this is a red block I know, card. You're not using the second I, cycle. That's what I'm saying. It's like, theoretically, we're second cycle. I know exactly what card is on top of my deck. I know exactly what card is on your top of your deck. Yes, it's not variance. But overall, this is quite a, like, this is definitely a variance injection. And it's it's like a fun mechanic. And then that, is it going to be skill expressive and rewarding? I'm not sure. I'm evaluating this in limited, by the way, because this is going to really rear its head limited. When people are playing this in constructed, they're probably going to be playing something like a guardian deck and they know their attack is going to be bigger than yours like 95% of the time, right? And that's why they're playing this card. But in limited, you're probably actually going to be taking legitimate risks uh, with this card. Um, will that make, will that mechanic be fun? Yes, probably. Will it also be tilting and maybe a bit too high variance? Also potentially. Um, but I, I'm, Go, I think that they should go for it. Why not? Like one of the least fun, in my opinion, I guess it's one of the most fun and least fun things about Flesh and Blood Limited is the heavy attrition math-based mm-hmm. deck versus deck games. They're rewarding. They can be fun if you're very you're a very entrenched player and you know what you're doing, but they can also be extremely unfun and toxic and degenerate uh, if you know you don't know how to navigate that matchup or you just end up losing. So I, yeah. I'm, I'm happy they're doing it, but uh, will I enjoy the mechanic ultimately? I'm not sure, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to see it. I think these cards, so interesting, the cards that have Clash are quite powerful. You know, they're zero for four block cards, but they have this kind of deck building requirement to them as well, I think. So it's like, you know, let's say you are playing, so you've got Test of Strength, which is a generic block card. Maybe you're playing this in a lower powered deck, like a lower physical attack power deck. 
and you appear into an opponent who you you know is maybe the guardian on the other side, and you feel like they're probably gonna have a, a reasonably high average attack power in the deck. It's like, what's the like? What do you think the swing on that is? Like, are you gonna lose like eighty percent of your of your clashes? Well, then you side those versus- bad boys out, and that makes like. A- but do you? Because it's a zero for four, so do you? So that's that's the I thing. Mean, what's so the value of the gold the, token? The token that's right? the, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that's the interesting thing. Like, what is the value of that token? I think that's to your point. There's variance, but there's also sure. there's de- deck building intrigue. You're, yeah, you're evaluating it from like the seasoned, experienced player, where you're like, okay, let's look at the exact value of the gold token in this matchup. Does it actually matter? Am I still getting enough value out of the four block? And my opponent gets a gold token. Do yeah. I still win the exchange? But what f- I think what the designers are looking at are that we will have sideboard oriented cards because, like, in, let's be real, in bright lights, sideboarding not really a thing to be honest, and these cards in essence, at least from a design aspect, I think have a sideboard potential or having a, have a potential to be in in some matchups and out in others where you are faced with that dynamic where like maybe I'm the warrior, my opponent's the guardian, this card is likely to give them a gold token every single time. So now it has you know, left my deck for this matchup. Gives players more decisions yeah. and push and pull. Yeah, I, I think I see it more as like a like a scale of like how powerful this card is based on like, you know, in certain decks it's going to be lower power, certain decks to be higher power. But then also I think like I want to see if this, these tokens are actually interesting. Like if the if you're at a draft table and you see like a gold payoff card go around, right? You like pass it to your left and that play ends up in Guardian and then you play into the Guardian and you've got Test of Strength in your deck, which makes it gold if you lose the cat clash, you know, like for them. All of a sudden it's like, okay, this card's gone from like, you know, maybe a solid zero for four with, you know, a gold token they might be able to use to a zero for four where I probably lose the clash and they probably get like, you know, some great payoff for it. So I'm like, yeah, like you say, that's now I'm getting that out of my deck. But I don't know. It's interesting. I think like I want these cards that kind of force you to have this kind of like conundrum of like what you like a cost to potentially put them in your deck versus an, a potential upside to put them in your deck, which is, is good. I like yeah, that. I say go for it because the last thing I want to see in heavy hitters is another pile-oriented sort of attrition-based format, which Bright Lights, to its defense, at the highest level, at the highest level of the World Championships, not necessarily that kind of format. Does it have aspects of that? Is it uh, common? Yes. But is it the end-all, be-all? No. Uh, at your local game store? Yeah, that strategy is pretty powerful. I don't want to see that again in heavy hitters. I want to see a format that is uh, less susceptible to attrition-based game plans and is more of like, you know, I have these cards for this matchup, these cards for that matchup. I'm making decisions when I'm building my deck. I'm taking, you know, the bad cards out and I'm trying to build this more synergistic deck. I would like to see that be the case in heavy hitters. Sure. All right, let's move on. All right. Well, <clears throat> head to our comment section from the previous YouTube video. If you want to get yours read out on next week's podcast, you can shoot us a comment on YouTube. The first one here comes from Ash Shatter. Uh, they say, curious about your thoughts on removing blues from five switchblade lists. Normally, the sideboard blues weren't only for Icelander, but also to put in an Emberblade in matchups like Azuri, Reinar, etc. Do you still think? Do you still think that some can come out of the list, or are they still necessary? Um, first of all, I read this and was like, Fi Switchblade, do they mean Azuri or do they mean Fi? <laughs> and then I realized that this is a Kadachi slash Ember Blade sort yeah. of question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a deck that plays both Kadachis and Ember Blades. Um, I, I mean, honestly, I, I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm not enough of a Fire player. Um, most of my group or friends who are fire players don't play kadachis they're not they're not kadachi truthers they don't see the the value in 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 those decks and i mean i kind of agree like in terms of the way you put the deck together is really difficult if you're going to play kadachis so it doesn't i don't know it's the, there's a high risk versus reward sort of aspect i think when you're trying to play kadachis in your deck you have to build your deck quite differently i mean obviously the world champion played kadachis and emblades in in his deck so emblade sorry and kadachis in his list so um you know it's clearly something to it uh in terms of like taking out the blues i mean i, I think if you're on the Emberblade build yeah i think you know if you're if you're gonna play Emberblade until all these matchups i don't see why you need maybe as many blues as you traditionally had and, and kind of decks were playing some suboptimal blues i think but if you are going to play some number of these um or you're gonna play kadachi in some number of matchups then I think it really depends on what the rest of your cost structure looks like. Like, can you get away with potentially some some yellows of blues, for instance, that that have some power to them, so that you can pitch those to Kadachi value as opposed to having these zero cost blues that 
maybe you don't need for other matchups that are just kind of there for cyborg slots but maybe now you want those cyborg slots, slots to be other things so yeah i i think this is a, a question for some of those fire specialists out there let us know in the comments what, what you think if if um hash adder thinks what two hash adders question but i think if you're going to run kadachis you obviously need to have some way to fuel that but maybe it could be yellows if you've got the right cost structure all right, next one here is from Justin. They say, I'm really happy to see Brendan have some fire about competing in due to super talented. I'd love to see him take an event out. So I didn't pick this one to toot my own horn. I picked this one because I think that Justin, <laughs> there's one thing I want to tell Justin is that uh, thank you for the kind words, but unfortunately in flesh and blood, as I've taken a bit of a hiatus for about a year, the, the play level is not the same. <laughs> people have consistently they kept getting better and uh if we want to like i i just i honestly i don't know how it's going to shake out in 2024 because i mean even from the commentary booth watching the gameplay i mean some of these players are so 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 good at this point way better than when i played uh even one two years ago so mm. yeah it, it's going to be a challenge for sure and yeah i just wanted to pick this comment to highlight just that aspect that i've witnessed from the booth in and of itself is just how much better the flesh and blood player base has gotten uh since i left and it's it's much 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 harder to uh sort of place and do well in this game than it was before you you you've tested a lot this year for events and the lead up to events for being in the booth have you have you played any events this year? Did you play a calling or like, did you play? You no, know, because you ended up. I played US Dallas. Nationals, but I played Kano, so I wasn't being That's super right. serious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I played US Nationals, but I wasn't super serious because yeah, we didn't really get the information on like the casting situation for that until right. super super late. So uh, I sort of went last minute. Anyway, next one. John Smith, they say, could you explain the competitive flesh and blood road? I'm looking to start attending events other than my armories, but don't know where to start. I'm located in New South Wales. Hayden might be the perfect person to explain to get this started. I just want to say, John, first, this is probably an entire podcast of itself. So I'm pretty sure we've done this podcast before, but we can at least hit the the highlights of like what it looks like to start the competitive flesh and blood road. Hayden, what would you, you know, you fellow New South Wales resident, what would be your pathway? I like that you know the acronym. Nice. Uh, um, I mean, first of all, I, John, I don't think we've met before, but um, hopefully get to meet you at some point. I wonder if John Smith's your real name, you know, this, <laughs> John Smith. Mm. Um, I think the I think it's going to look different for everyone, to be honest. And we did talk about this on that the pod that Brendan's... I have to go back and find out what pod number that was, but we did speak about kind of growing your um, your competitive flesh and blood path, so to speak, or going down that path. I think the the main thing is 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 being able to play games of Flesh and Blood. So if that's gonna start with armories and then building into things like a ProQuest season, a road to national season, that's the natural progression is you know, you start to attend these ProQuest, Road to National season, you get to see the the level of players and and what they're at. And you get to play against probably better players than the average of your armory. I'm not saying armory players aren't, you know, these are the same players that armories are gonna be attending ProQuest and and um and road to nationals, but you're gonna get the best players from the area going in, so from different armories, different stores, you're going to get some of these players who are there to play specifically those events who are maybe grinders. So you're going to start to encounter these players and so you're going to play against better players. I think that's kind of, that's that's where you've got to start, I think. I think the other one is like get yourself to a calling because this is the, the I guess, the most competitive open event that you can get to. So if there's a calling, you know, we just had calling in Melbourne. I'm sure there'd be another calling in Australia or, or local um, next year. If you can get to one of those and experience the level of play and just immerse yourself in kind of what that looks like, I think that's very beneficial. I think, you know, you come back from a calling, you go back to your armory, you've probably learned a thing or two. You probably feel like you've taken a, a step up in a level uh, next time you go and, and play some games against your, your local armory players. So I think that's kind of what my advice would be is, is just get and play games, get to these events and then work the rest out afterwards, you know, and then start to set goals. It's like, okay, I've gone to my first pro quest, my first road to nationals, maybe even my first calling. I, you know, didn't day two my calling. My my target is now to day two the calling or my target after my first pro quest where I went three, three is now to have a positive record on top eight and then move on from there. Start to just grow and, and get into, you know, I want a place now. I want to win the pro quest, um, whatever it might be. So everything Hayden said is correct and valid. I want to say something polarizing because a lot of people, I think there's going to be a decent amount of people listening. It's Dell Note exists. You mentioned a word here. It's called, you said pathway. Uh, what is the pathway to competitive flesh and blood or the road to flesh and blood? Um, 
You can also buy a PTI to attend any tier four event. So anything like a pro tour world championship, you can always buy the PTI and you can go mm-hmm. compete at the highest level. So flesh and blood, if you don't know, uh, it has a PTI gifting system. You can, you can buy PTIs from players that have them and you can go attend the pro tours or the world championships. And if we're talking about a road to compete, that is a road that people can take. So there is, of course, you can, mm-hmm. you can grind it out on the, uh, road to nationals or the pro quest circuit or do well at a calling or a Baldenharden and get your invite or you can buy it. I think it's a system that Hayden and I obviously know it exists, but there's got to be some people out there that are like, wait, what? You can buy PTIs? Anyway. Yeah. On to the next one. Yeah. It's, oh. well, I just, just quickly on that. I think it's quite interesting because it's, I think you have, you got to have, you really got to have a reason for doing that. So either it's like you want the experience of going and playing one of these and saying, you know, like I played in the Pro Tour, I played in Worlds, whatever it might be very valid reason maybe it's a case of like you've been really improving your play you really think you're at the level to, to go and compete but you're just just falling short of maybe getting that pti maybe you're getting second top four top eight whatever it is in these pro quests or road to nationals because you can also buy a pti for, road to, uh, for nationals as well brennan mm-hmm. um so yeah i, I think there's there's I, I actually when we first talked about the system i was like oh man i don't know about the system but i've really come around i think the system is great so yeah but i do think yeah. you want a reason so <laughs> i'll start quickly talk about that too so i like this system uh mm-hmm. ultimately i think that ultimately i like it what i will say is that it does make some of these events like a little bit less prestigious and less special because you can just pay to win to get there and it's not pay to win literally but you can buy being pay able to, to pay to play pay, yeah pay to play at these events it's it's a bit interesting because you know flesh and blood has this robust uh this robust competitive system and this ladder that you can sort of climb in order to reach these events or you can cut the line and pay money so I don't like that aspect of it because it kind of negates all of that stuff. Like for me, it's like if I didn't have PTIs banked up, oh, do I go drive, you know, three hours out of the way this way, you know, uh, spend for lodging, you know, in some other state and try to compete at all these different pro quests, you know, scramble to try to get into these ones that are capped? Or do I just pay 500 bucks and get a PTI? It's like actually the EV is probably in favor of just buying it most of the time instead of doing that so i don't like that aspect uh but i would say for me uh it's super convenient (laughs) i like that anyway next one quasi shifted and so last one they say i actually tune into the streams to watch cc rounds and as soon as they go to draft they turn it off then i go figure out when cc rounds should resume and just tune back in i think you're not alone there uh funnily enough i hate the switch as a viewer as well if if uh, you were doing all in all draft t- tournament, I'd be way more likely to just tune in and watch it. But since I came to CCC games being played, I just get annoyed as a viewer that there was a switch and turn off the stream. Maybe others don't feel the same way, but that's it's the way I feel. Um, I'm not sure if other feel, others feel the same way because I shifted. I know that I feel that way when watching Magic coverage. Uh, I've been a part of a lot of the Flesh and Blood coverage, so I don't think it's fair to for me to comment on that specifically. I will say that the viewership numbers absolutely are uh, sort of representative of what you're experiencing. Um, we tend to see people leave the stream as soon as we go to draft and they come back as soon as we come to CC. And maybe it is the juxtaposition of the two formats. I think the draft in and of itself is a harder format for people to be invested in, to empathize with, and to be interested in, um, especially when the drafts are not filmed. But uh, yeah, CC is just, CC definitely is the more watched format, but the juxtaposition of the two, I think is, I think ultimately is not good for coverage. Should coverage dictate the competitive schedule for, you know, whether a format is dual format or single format at the highest level? Probably not. Um... But yeah, I mean, of course, I spoke about it last pod. I'd, I'd be in favor of single formats. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've spoken about my, uh, some of my criticisms of the Flesh and Blood Limited format, but I would still be very happy to see a full, full draft pro tour. And, uh, you know, with that, a full constructed pro tour as well. Um, Hayden, do you have any thoughts on this? No, I think we talked all yeah. about it last week. I, I think um, you just said not sure that coverage should dictate what the top level i guess formats look like but i mean i i think if we want to get this game out there more then i think it kind of it kind of should a little bit it should at least yeah to be fair be to be fair the biggest relevant. one of the biggest games and one of the biggest coverage productions magic the gathering they do do dual format as well and they are surely aware of this uh this effect but yeah. do it nonetheless so um i think there's precedent in order to continue doing it but um yeah i know as a player preparing for the event yeah, I said it last week. I don't like it. <laughs> All right, let's move on to talk about 
I guess the new meta, like the Icelander living legend is is a really massive shift in in what we're seeing. And we've just had two events over the well, I guess technically three events, but two two separate uh, located events over the weekend. We've had this uh the round twenty K, the invitational, and then this round ten K open event, and then we've also had the battle harden in in uh, Bangkok. So around a hundred plus players in each of the invitationals and the opens in isn't wasn't Ohio, right? That's right, Brendan. Uh, yeah. Yep, and then uh, I think around fifty players at the the Battle Harden in, in Bangkok. So let's let's start with the round event. Let's talk a little bit about this meta. We have a meta breakdown from these events. Um, this is coming from February. It looks like most of the decks are here. So this looks pretty accurate because um, it looks like there's about a hundred hundred players involved in each of these. So it looks about right. So we can talk about meta breakdowns and what has kind of happened post Icelander, and then we can maybe discuss a little bit, Brendan, just kind of what we think this means as we head towards heavy hitters like is this just people trying stuff out seeing what the land land is or is this kind of setting the stage for what the format is going to look like as we head towards heavy hitters because if you cast your mind back to some previous metas as we headed towards new sets it was kind of like uh, i don't know if the set's really going to shake things up much whereas uh, we can talk about it afterwards but this might be the first time where like a set is going to have like a massive immediate impact just because the meta feels like the power level of the meta feels a lot closer from the top deck to the bottom deck than it has ever before, I think. Um, yeah. and, that, and that's just living, that's living. Yeah, because all the honestly. broken heroes have started to leave the format. I mean, there's still yeah. a few left, but uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the context of the meta has definitely changed drastically. Yeah. So let's get into this Realm 20k Invitational first. Uh, and Bravo was the most represented deck. So yeah. your your boy Bravo. No, Bra- Bravo's good there. now. Don't Nobody can come at me and pop <laughs> shit and say that I am not... I don't think Bravo's good in this meta. I thought Bravo was bad in other metas. Bravo is definitely Changing good in this meta. Already. I'm the, I'm the only one here that has brought Bravo <laughs> to a competitive event. <laughs> only one. All right. Bravo. So top five decks at the Realm 20k Invitational. So Bravo, Showstopper, then it was Dromai. So there's a 17 for Bravo, 14 for Dromai. So pretty close between one and two there. Um, and then actually Dash and Inventor Extraordinaire at third, 13 decks. So, you know, it's really tight kind of through these top five decks. Then Fire with 12 copies uh, is the fourth most played. And then your fifth most played is actually tied between Kano and Katsu. Uh, I have a feeling that some of your friends might have been about half those Kanos in that event. So, um, but yes. Yeah. I'm looking at the names now and yes. <laughs> fifth through six but then also actually bolton was seventh uh with seven played decks and we're definitely gonna talk a little bit more about bolton but i do just want to kind of lay i guess set the scene for for what we saw over this weekend um and then we'll go to the the meta and the 10k and we'll come back to the top eight so meta and 10k dromai actually was the most played deck 14 copies there um bravo second so dromai bravo one and two in both these events and then Fi was third uh, Azalea was actually fourth, which I was surprised to see fewer Azalea in that uh, Invitational event. I think Azalea is quite strong. We've seen it do well in previous formats. Uh, fourth most played. And then fifth most played was Dash. Actually, equal equal fourth was uh, Dash with Azalea. And then Bolton was was the sixth most played. Um, so quite interesting. I guess the with the heroes that I was surprised we didn't see more of is definitely Dash IO after the kind of performance of, of Dash IO. In, in Melbourne and but also Worlds yeah yeah I guess I guess people expecting a lot of Bravo and probably expecting a lot of uh, Azalea as well which I can't imagine is a great matchup for you um I don't know any other surprises of decks that we uh, that aren't being represented in there well uh yeah I mean Bolton is a surprise right everything else is thoroughly unsurprising of course Mansan top aided with Levia uh which which is surprising I mean it's I guess at this point, um, I do think that Bravo is really well positioned. If I was going to compete in an event, I would bring Bravo. Uh, part of that is familiar familiarity with the deck, but also I think that the list that uh, the like Michael Hamilton, Michael Fang brought to the World Championship, uh, the very aggressive list list could be decent into Dromai. I mean, they were doing some things different than we were doing with our aggressive list, so I would be keen to try that out. Um, and then past that, I mean, Dromai is, Dromai is a fantastic deck, but now Phi is probably coming into the format a lot more, and the dash matchup can also be uh, a little bit tough. So, yeah, I mean, honestly, Hayden, no surprises. I, I can't imagine how we would be surprised in this format, and Kano doing as well as it did, is it surprising? Uh, no, its worst matchup left the format, which was Icelander, and now decks are uh, more incentivized to cut Arcane Barrier. So Arcane Barrier was just existed in deck list because Icelander was a very popular deck. Now you're making an actual decision when you put it into your deck list. Mm-hmm. I mean, you say it did well. I mean, it did fairly well, but I will say that um, Levi and Bolton both had uh, better conversions on the weekend, just, just so you know. <laughs> 
Yeah. Let's let's talk top eights. Let's talk top eights quickly. Just got to put you back in your seat there. Let's talk top eights uh, quickly. We can talk about Battle Heart and Hong Kong. Uh, sorry, Bangkok, because we didn't have a minute breakdown for this, but we did manage to secure a, a top eight breakdown. I got to say, this Realm event, fantastic. Obviously, we've got some cover- some great coverage that was uh, shown. Alice has put up an article about this, but Alice has also had an official event this weekend in the Battle Heart in Bangkok, and I could not find a shred of anything on the Alice's website about it. So um, that is that is tough. Uh, top eight decks. So the 20k event. So it was won by Brody Spurlock on Azalea. The only copy of Azalea in the top eight. There were two copies of Dash uh, in the top eight, making the semifinals and the final. We did see one Levira, as Brennan said, one Bolton, one Bravo, one Dromai, one Kano. So pretty diverse top eight. And I mean, the only deck that I guess you'd say kind of from the the top that maybe underperformed was Fi. Fi was the the fourth most played deck in that event and and didn't put any copies into top eight. Mm-hmm. That's about as diverse as it gets for a for a top eight metagame. Um, also, <clears throat> you know, what's what's not diverse is the the names that made it into the top eight. I mean, I actually giggled to myself when I saw the top eight to this event because it is just maybe I just know these people too well after a couple years on the circuit. But I literally recognize every single person in the top eight, and they've all top eighted a major event. Maybe not Raj. I'm not I'm not familiar if Raj has top eighted like a calling or a nationals or whatever, but every single other one of these players has top eighted a uh, a major tier three or tier four event. So it's uh very, very good players. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, I, I'm not I'm not sure Ethan and Peter, I'm not sure if they have, but I mean they've definitely they've been top eighting a lot of other Peter, events, if not. Yeah, Peter just won the Battle Harden. I felt like he, I'm not sure if he's top eighted a calling quite yet. I mean, I remember thinking about it earlier when Peter posted about it. I remember having a thought. I remember this the specific context where I thought it was like, oh, I thought he had been doing a lot better than that. <laughs> um, because Peter is honestly one of the best players that I've actually seen in this game. And Ethan has Ethan. I mean, Ethan's probably also... He keeps doing things with the Levi that others aren't doing, yeah, so yeah. he's claiming that either way. Let's talk about the 10K top eight. Uh, 10K was won by Michael Fing. There you go. Like you say, another name that you recognize. Uh, the top eight breakdown was, again, one Bravo in the hands of Michael Fing. Uh, we saw an Azalea make the finals. We had, and you said it gets more diverse. This gets more diverse. Two Dromai, a Fi, a Bolton, a Kano, and a Levi. So a Levi in each of the top eights, a Bolton in each of the top eights. Pretty interesting to see. Who was the Kano that top eighted the 10K? Uh, Nathaniel Snyder. Cool. Yeah. And then let's quickly flick across to the Battle Harden in Bangkok. And then we can talk a little bit about kind of just this meta in general. But top eight there looks a little bit different, a little bit less diverse. There was uh, two Katsu, uh, three Katsu, sorry, two Bravo, two Azalea, a Leviah. Um, that's the top eight. Yeah. So a little bit less diverse in, in, um, in Bangkok. Ultimately won by Bravo beating Katsu in the finals. Uh, sorry, beating Azalea in the finals. Um, so those decks really preying on the on the ninjas that made top eight, but yeah, Leviya in all three top eights, uh, Bravo in all three top eights. That's and a Azalea in all three top eights. I think that's the consistency, right? Yeah, there you go. So those are the decks that perform the best. I mean, I guess the overall numbers points to the Bravos of the world, right? Yeah. Bravo had a pretty good weekend. One, two of the three events. Azalea won the other. So. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. This is this feels so different. This is so crazy to see. Like this is so different to when we've seen Icelander dominating and we've seen um, you know Lexi dominating before this. Like this format just looks so different without those two heroes in it. Yeah, I was uh, to be honest. I just went down a little rabbit hole and was looking at the Kano list. Um, I think Peter was trolling by the way with this Kano list. Uh, I think that he actually played a sixty card deck and he just trolled with all the other slots, um, especially with the equipment. Because he has Arcane Lantern. Arcane Lantern. Yes, he has Arcane Lantern. And then he has reinforced the line. And like, I mean, I think he was trolling. So yeah, keep that in mind if you look at Peter, Peter's Kano list. Uh, I was looking at that Nathaniel's list, which is actually pretty interesting because he has three Cindering Foresight, as well as the two Snapback and the one Chain Lightning. Just a very aggressive oriented list. Uh, Cindering. Yeah. is a card that we've played in the past in matchups that we felt like we were an underdog in or matchups we felt like we had to go really, really, really fast. Um, but Peter, uh, Nathaniel is definitely a lot more streamlined. I mean, Peter has the single brainstorm and yeah i'm 100% sure peter was absolutely trolling with his deck list so it, reinforce the line yeah it's a 60 card deck list and he just doesn't have a sideboard basically uh no no need for a sideboard anymore after icelanders love the format the one dampen of course is is sideboard i think some of the aether darts are for dromai outside of that the yeah. rest of these cards are just memes uh this is not a real deck list <laughs> tunic and hard and cross yeah yeah so i'll nice. let you guys know <laughs> before you see that that's uh, uh that's hilarious definitely memeing okay all right let's talk a little bit about 
I guess, heroes overall. So you said that if you were to go play an event this weekend, you would go pick up Bravo. And I, I guess if we're looking at the meta, like the meta looks like in terms of, you know, representation, it looks like Bravo and Dromai are the top two decks that we're going to see represented if you're going to show up to an event probably. It looks like you're going to see a reasonable amount of Azalea based on, on performance, um, Dash, Fi, and, and Bolton. So I, you think Bravo pretty well positioned in that format potentially? Yeah. The hyper aggressive list for sure. And uh, I mean, I saw you can just look at the list in the top of like Michael Hamlet's list is probably, I'm just going to pull it up now. It's probably stock, pretty stock to what was played at the World Championship. Um, mm-hmm. And yes, that does look to be the case. So they what they do with this deck list, by the way, and where their deck list differentiates is they play the Findle Spring Tunic and they play Choke Slams and Debilitates, the four costs, uh, four for eights. Mm-hmm. So for for resurvey, but basically two card eight when you play it with a tunic, and then they also play the pummel off the tunic as well. So that's sort of what this deck is looking to do, and it, it it's it's pretty powerful. I mean, this is this is what you have to do in order to beat your my with Bravo, uh, in my opinion. Go ahead. I like how you give them. I was talking about this on the pod the week before uh, World, saying you know like the the Bravo list. I think is the correct Bravo list is the tunic based Bravo list. And you're like, oh, I don't know about that, man. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just a big fan of uh, of Michael yeah. Hamilton. When Michael Ham- when the Michaels do it, it's cool. <laughs> you know, when, when Hayden talks about it, it ain't cool. I get it. I get it. I get it. Yeah, I was also um, looking at Big and Weiss list, which is pretty interesting. Looks like he also has the debilitates in there, but uh, you know, it does have like things like one staunch response, the unmovable, smashing good time to deal with dash. So a bit of a different take, uh, a little bit less aggressive, but still the three red pummels. Looks like three red pummels wearings, and also a very, very, very critical difference is that Dagan White is. Uh, not playing the tunic, so that's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh, I want to talk about Dash IO because Dash IO obviously had a very, very good performance prior to the World Championship, but it didn't convert at the World Championship, and also didn't convert now the Icelander's gone. Uh, I think that Dash IO has a bad matchup into Bravo, um, especially if Bravo's mm-hmm. playing things like Civis Steps and the Buckler. It's just you really like. I don't know. You just like can't do the thing your deck is trying to do. At least the list that yeah. Tom was playing, um, or derivatives of Tom's list, they just really can't force through any of the boom grenades with all that equipment. And then the Bravo is also hitting you with massive attacks that have on hit effects. So it's a rough match. Yeah, when you take turns to sit up or something. Yeah, when you kind of take a turn off without a boom grenade threat. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I let's talk a little bit about Bolton. Like Bolton is so interesting. I think this format is the power level has come down and it's going to allow decks like Bolton that, that are actually pretty powerful. Like Bolton's a pretty powerful hero, but maybe the the consistency or the reliability or the susceptibility mm. to some of these more powerful decks has been its problem. And now it feels like this could be Bolton's time. It's really like, Honestly. Yeah. It's a, you phrase that in a funny way because Bolton, I mean, I'll, I'll push back on Bolton is a very underpowered hero is a very bad hero but it has good cards i mean the hero ability sucks right you have to has bad cards it has has, as a powerful it has something that it can do that's ultra powerful but on the whole yes it's like charging the the rate on cards underpowered yes yeah yeah. charging is not good okay yeah so i mean i i just can't wait for lumina ascension combo to be to be good again and everybody gets to deal with that deck because it's uh, not fun to deal with i will say that what now the equipment is so much better good again yeah, good. Well, Again. it was not, Again. dude. It was it. So I think it was bad. Don't get me wrong. I think it was bad in the day, but it was it was playable. Um, it was definitely playable. But uh, the equipment is so much better nowadays that it, I can't. It's gotta have a harder time because you really your your lack of access to equipment in the past is what made that so hard to deal with. And then, yeah, I, I don't know. I I really don't have too many words to say on Bolton because Bolton, the new Bolton decks, they have a lot of new cards in them, which is a good thing. I mean, it's a thumbs up yeah. for uh, for Dust Till Dawn there. So these lists, I just don't have a lot of experience with them. The ones that I do have experience with are more the Lumina Ascension combo or the Raiden Midrange list, which I think that these decks, they are hybrids of that. They have the two Centauri Sabres, but they also have the Raiden Dustblade for the more Midrange game plan. Yeah, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be playing some Bolton. I think if I yeah. get a chance to... to um, to play any events this side of Christmas, maybe I hit to an armory or something. Like I think I'm gonna sleep at Bolton. Like Warband of of um Bellona is like a very interesting card. You know, obviously, like you say, there's a lot of new cards just in general. Like I, I saw that Yuki was playing like Cadaverous Contraband. Yeah. You know, it's like it's a popper, but also it's a an attack that can just kill a dragon and then put, you know, Lamina back on top of your deck or um whatever card that you're looking beacon whatever it is you know it's interesting like i'm i'm kind of in for playing some bolton i I won't lie you know what card you can play in bolton unified decree oh Oh. Oh. 
Don't tempt me. Don't tempt me with the unified decree bolt. <sighs> I don't think it's good. I don't think it's good, but we'll see. Um, I don't know. Also, I mean, Dash is a, a deck that I spent a lot of time with prior to the World Championships and a deck that kind of is probably pretty high on my radar heading towards LA. We'll see what happens with heavy hitters, but it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, a deck that I would like to to revisit. The the format is like kind of aggressive, but it's not as aggressive as I thought it would be. Just you know, problem, Bangkok right? hit. Well, this is the thing. Yeah, potentially. That's what I'm trying to work out. So, hear me out here because I'm going to get to some brute copium in a second. But <laughs> um, Bangkok had a lot of cuts here, right? It's three cuts in the top eight. Um, but. Is there a world where this is not as aggressive as people thought flying Katsu? Because everyone was worried about ninjas coming out of worlds. It's okay. Icelander Living Legends, is this ninja's time to kind of shine? And so far, week one's not saying that that's overly true. I mean, there's some hints of it, right, with with uh, Battleheart and Bangkok. But if you're heading to an event next weekend, is there a world where, you know, maybe Leviah does does rise up? So we saw a Leviah in each of the the three top eights over the weekend. So pretty good, pretty good rate there. But also, is there a world where Reiner is uh, is viable? Like, if, if players are trying to, like, you know, they're looking at these decks, like, Bravo doing well, like, Azalea doing well, feeling like maybe we need to be a little more defensive um, orientated, does that, does that give a spot for Reiner to slip in? I don't know. Is Reiner good into the aggressive Bravo deck? Don't know. I mean, I think you'd have to build pretty specifically to deal with that, and it might warp your deck for the meta too much. So, you might be better off playing Leviah in that situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that that was sort of my thoughts. Is that the the deck list that Reinar used to prey on in regards to Bravo or be good into is no longer the deck list that Bravo is running. And I do think that the ninjas are being gay kept by Bravo specifically. Um, mm-hmm. Bravo is just very very good into the ninjas, especially with this deck list. I mean, it just got more it got more gas. And this this is the exact type of deck list you would want to run into ninjas anyway. And they're bringing it not even for the ninjas. Um, things yeah. like the choke slams, the debilitates, but you have the crippling crush. Of course, you have crippling rush, but now you also have starstruck. You just have so many ways to like time walk them and just stop them from playing the game. Yeah, I agree. I think if I'm looking at this, if we're taking away from the first week of this of this new meta, and then I'm also just looking at the decks that are just generically powerful, like I think Bravo is like top of that pile. Like it just has has these has kind of some of the the aspects of Ultim with the, the good blues. It has Rouse the Ancients. It has a lot of just like proactive threats that are really really efficient. It can chop and change them depending on what the meta looks like as well. So I think Bravo kind of has to be top of that pile. But the others up there like are for me like is like Dash is still up there. Like Dash looks like That's a super. Good. Dash just has good cards. So does Azalea. Like these three decks just have a lot of powerful cards in them between Bravo, Azalea, and Dash. So I think straying outside those three is going to be tough. I mean, we're still seeing Dromai put up the numbers, but uh, I don't know. Dromai feels so... It's just in a much different spot than it was when Icelander was around when it kind of had this you know pre-tome i'm now even talking when it kind of had a hero that it potentially preyed on it was had this kind of set up to play in a favorable way into lexi like it's not that dromai has like lost anything necessarily it's just that the meta's kind of changed and dromai's the way dromai plays into this meta might it just might not be right might not be the right time for dromai but you know it's still very powerful i would say yeah dromai doesn't to me it doesn't sit in those top three decks dromai's probably still really really good to be honest like the the tome imperial flame stuff is just it's just decently unfair. The only my only issue with that deck list is that it's relatively inconsistent. And uh Yep. Yeah. It's the other three are not. Well, Azalea can be, but the other two aren't. Yeah. And uh yeah, consistency is key. So that's my only issue with your mind, but I still think that it's yep. I still think it's just as powerful as, as it was before. I think it had a pretty good matchup in the Icelander. Um especially if your deck list was ready for it, like you had the sand covers and stuff. Um and yeah, obviously more ninjas now, so that that's a downside most likely but mm-hmm. it's still one of the best decks in the game i mean there's 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 definitely a few really powerful decks left in the format um from the old format and i think about things like Dramai and dash like the that the dash showcase of the world championship was pretty phenomenal like that deck did really really good and I, it's it's i think that if it had won the tournament it would have been at nine nine eight living legend points so i'm not sure how long how long it is for this world i thought if dash won the worlds it was gone I think it was nine nine eight. I could be wrong. Could be wrong. Could be wrong. Okay. Okay. I need to go and have a look. Probably right. Um, So I think we don't. You know, we're not. We're not uh, tier listers here at Arsenal Pass. But I think if I was looking right now, kind of heading into week two of the the thought out meta, as I'm going to call it, uh, I think I'm looking at Azalea. So Bravo, Azalea, Dash, and kind of that top tier, top echelon, and then the next tier down. I'm looking right now. Personally, I'm thinking it's looking like to me, Dromai. 
I'm going to put Bolton in there and Fai, I think. I'm not a big Katsu fan, dude. I don't get Katsu. I think Katsu for me is the next the next tier down, but that's fine. That's like the Katsu, Leviah, like still powerful, still doing good stuff tier. Maybe Bolton's in that tier, but uh, maybe it's a little higher. Dash IO, I think that's like that third tier to me at the moment, but we'll see. Katsu, Katsu uh, sorry, Kano, sorry, would also be in that, that third tier. Sure. I'm not going to give a tier list. I'm not yet. I'm not sure. It's not a tier list. It's just where I think things are positioned in the format relative to their power level, all right? All right? Not a tier list. I want to make that clear. We don't do tier lists here at Arsenal Pass, Brenda. <laughs> the numbers keep going down. We're going to start. <laughs> what are you going down? What are you talking about? 6.4K subscribers, Brendan. Thank you to all of those who, all, all of the Arsenal Pass listeners who have made sure to subscribe. Brendan made a call to action about three weeks ago saying, if you've listened to the pod for the last three years or two and a half years, whatever it is, and you're not already subscribed, he wants to hear who you are and you didn't get any feedback. So that must mean that they're all subscribed, Brendan. Yeah, honestly, it, you, a specimen if you've gotten to that point. That's an achievement. That's an achievement to be uh, to be listening that long. But maybe- They're then probably you- Spotify listeners. Ah, uh, yeah, for sure. Listeners. But if you haven't left a review, also, what the f- What are you doing? Number one thing you can do, by the way, leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And yeah, ratethatspodcast.com plus Arsenal Pass as well. Both of us are on Twitter, Brendan APG, Fien underscore Dale. 